0: week we talked about how life in a fallen and sin-cursed world can be extremely difficult and it's not if but when you go through a difficult time perhaps there's nothing more comforting than knowing there is someone there who can relate to what you're going through and sympathize with you someone who can meet you in your pain, in your suffering, in your trials, sympathize with you and just extend to relief saying, I know how you feel and I'm here for you. I've been there, I've done that, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, let me know. We thank God for those kind of people in our lives, don't we? That's what we want to look at today. In our Christmas series this year, we've been in Hebrews studying how God has spoken to us in the the person and work of the incarnated son in fact that's the the opening verse says god has spoken to us in his son so that's where that comes from and today we're going to see how the son of god can speak to our difficulties and hardships and trials the things that we go through in this fallen world he can sympathize with us and not only that he can actually extend aid he can he can give relief to us, in whatever we're going through, uh, the incarnation—God becoming man, taking on flesh—this is a major Christian doctrine that affects our knowledge of God, what we think about when we think of God, His humility, probably His His grace, His mercy. Um, we think of uh, it affects the way we think of salvation. It affects our salvation. It affects our our daily living. The pressing needs that we have, it, it affects our future. And uh, today the emphasis is going to be on how the God-man, the Son of God, ministers to us in our difficulties, in the pain and in the suffering, the trials that we go through in life. And remember that uh, the Jewish Christians, uh, Hebrews, uh, that's the, the title of the book, right? The Hebrews, this, that this letter is written to, they were going through a really Difficult time. They were being persecuted for their faith. Some of their Jewish brethren who did not believe in Christ as the Messiah were trying to get some of these Jewish Christians who did, they were trying to get them to revert back to Judaism, right? They're Christians now and they're trying to get them to go back to Judaism. And when you think of Judaism, you probably think of the law of Moses, following the law, the, the, uh, the temple the the priesthood offering sacrifices and all of that and they were being threatened to go back to Judaism actually there was a lot of persecution i mean imagine being under the tremendous social pressure that a, a new jewish christian would be under i mean it would be it'd be extremely difficult because think of being a young or young jewish man or woman who who's come to trust christ but you're in a family who doesn't here your, your parents don't your your jewish synagogue leaders they don't believe it and so uh... they're probably uh, trying to persuade you to come back to what they think is the truth and they're using scripture even though falsely um, They're they're saying you know what about the traditions of our forefathers you're just gonna drop all these traditions you know you were in line to serve in the priesthood when you become of age, and now now what? What are you going to do? Um, you just sinned. I saw what you did the other day. You just you sinned. I saw what you did. I heard what you said. And how come you're not going to go to the temple now and offer a sacrifice? You're just going to give all that up? Are you too good to offer sacrifices anymore? Do you see how a power, how strong that would be? How, uh, how powerful the religious persuasion would be to go back to Judaism, especially when the temple is still standing and you're in Jerusalem or in Judea and it's right there and all of that's still taking place. Yeah, that would be really difficult to be in. Uh, anyway, they're under tremendous social pressure and heavy religious persuasion. They were being ostracized and mistreated if they didn't revert. And so Hebrews, what Hebrews is, is a word of exhortation that uh, is exhorting them to stand firm in their faith. Can I get the next slide, please? Uh, This is the theme. You, You should stand firm in your faith because Christ is superior to Judaism. Don't revert because Christ is superior. In fact, Hebrews will demonstrate and does demonstrate that Judaism, with the priesthood and the sacrifices and the law of Moses and all of that, etc., those were all actually designed by God to point people to Christ when Christ came. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul likens uh, the law and all this to a, to a tutor. It's a tutor, like an elementary tutor. You give a tutor to a kid to train them up in the basic principles of the world, the elementary principles. And uh, Paul calls the law a tutor that was meant to lead us to maturity in Christ someday. And now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the tutor. We're full, mature, adult sons of God. Does that make sense? Um, Hebrews also likens Christ to and the law, or Judaism, to the substance and a shadow. So Christ is the actual substance. He's the person that was just, you know, casting the shadow. And you want to love the person. You don't love their shadow, do you? So husbands don't say, oh, honey, I just love your shadow so much. I wish I could hug it. Right? Your shadow is just so beautiful. And Boy, you know, you don't say that, right? But that's what it's like when you're still loving Judaism, when Christ has come, like the real person is there. Love the person, not the shadow. Uh, whenever you see an Old Testament sacrifice, uh, you should see, and that's kind of hard to see, but they're obviously sacrificing a lamb there. That lamb, all those Old Testament sacrifices were to, to prepare their hearts to receive the Lamb of God who would die to take away the sins of the world. And so going back from Christianity back to Judaism is like going back to the shadow. And uh that would just be really awkward, wouldn't it? To re- to revert or attempt to pacify to appease their antagonists with one foot in Christianity, maybe maybe some were thinking that I'll just I'll live with one foot in Christianity and one foot in Judaism. I'll go to synagogue on Saturday and uh I'll go to church on Sunday. You know, that'd be weird. And uh, <laughs> to attempt to sort of pacify their antagonists like that would be to go back to something inferior. And Hebrews actually says this would be to neglect God's will for your life. And uh, it's going to result in discipline. And that's kind of the one of the climaxes in, in the book of Hebrews. You get to chapter 12, and it talks about uh, Christians being disciplined for, for uh, neglecting their salvation, we could say. And so uh, they would miss out on God's will for them, and uh, they would miss out on rewards, future rewards in the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes to establish his kingdom. Uh, There's all this talk about rewards in the book of Hebrews, and then they would also miss out on how Christ could actually minister to them, how they're actually becoming like Christ in their persecution, and Christ is going to minister to them in it. They're missing out on a lot if they go back to Judaism. But as we we come to our text this morning, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, uh, if you want to turn there with me, let me ask you this. What difficult or undesirable situation are you going through? What hardship have you undergone that you need to look to Christ as you go through it? You know, is Christ enough for you in what you're going through? That's how we could sort of translate the principle that's going on in Hebrews with these Jewish Christians into our day right now. What difficulty, what difficult circumstance, undesirable circumstance are you going through, and is Christ enough for you in that? That's kind of what we want to look at. And remember, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand God is speaking directly to us through his word. That's the emphasis in Hebrews. God has spoken and he is speaking. And there's just a plethora of Old Testament scriptural citations in Hebrews. I think there's 30 of them. And the Hebrew author does not cite any human author, it doesn't cite any of the Old Testament passages there's no there's no formal even there's not even a formal greeting to the book it doesn't say hey this is you know this is barnabas or whoever this is writing to you it's like just god has spoken and that's that's intentional on the author's part because he doesn't he wants the the audience to sense that god is speaking to them today through scripture today if you hear his voice don't harden your hearts that's chapter 3 today listen to his voice and that's how god works through his word today isn't it you guys if you've if you've been in the word of god for any extent of your life i mean you've you've come to know that well chapter 4 verse 12 the word of god is living and active and he uses the word today to speak to us and uh that's my prayer for you today that you would have the lord speak to you through his word Uh, Verse 9, let's pick it up in verse 9. We're going to focus on verses 14 through 18, but let's check out or start at verse 9 to get some more context. But uh, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom... Are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect to the author of their salvation through sufferings. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And we've touched on those last verses in the past couple of weeks. And now we're going to focus on verses 14 through 18. Therefore, therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able, don't you love that? He is able to come to the aid of, of those who are tempted. All right, so right off the bat in verse fourteen, we see this uh, great reference to the incarnation, and by incarnation we mean uh, God taking on flesh. He's becoming a man. He, uh, Jesus, is the eternal God who has always existed in eternity past. But there was a point in time when He actually uh, stepped into our world. He he preexisted His birth, but he left, he left that glory in heaven to become a man, and He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And uh, the incarnation reference here is simply, he, he shared in flesh and blood. He partook of the same. He partook of the same. Shared is that, that Greek word that we've kind of become familiar with. In uh, our study of the book of Acts, uh, it's that word koinonia. It means to have in common, to have a common experience. Uh, it kind of reminds you of a, a close relationship uh, or relatability. Two people, husband and wife, they, they have a shared experience. They go through life together, something along those lines. Partook, that word, when I when you think of that word, it... it, it it signifies something that was previously uh, not partaken of, right? It was something unnatural to Christ. Uh, Christ didn't have a human body, but there was a point in time where he, he took it on. He partook of humanity, a literal, physical human body with flesh and blood and bones and nerves and probably backaches. And everything that comes with it, right? Joint pain. No. <laughs> uh, he took on a human body at a point in time. He partook of flesh and blood to share in a common human experience with us. Isn't that great? This is something, though, that the Jews would have really struggled with. They longed for the heavenly, uh, cloud riding, Rome conquering Messiah of Daniel chapter 7. And uh, the idea of a uh, A Messiah who would come, a king who would come, who who was earthly and would suffer and die on a cross, Uh, was just obviously not preferred. They prefer the cloud-riding, conquering Messiah, not the one that comes and dies in Isaiah 53. These are two different prophecies in the Old Testament that they wrestled with. How could he come on the clouds to rule, and how could he come and die? And uh, they even thought, some of them, that there was going to be two different messiahs. But actually, one's referring to the first coming, one's referring to the, the second coming. And we know that now. But uh, they didn't. They didn't have that revelation yet. So, uh, before, he, before he actually came. And so they would wrestle with the question, how could the anointed messiah of God be a man? And then how could he die? And especially die on a cross. And why would he go through all of that? And uh, why would he die on a cross? God said... In Deuteronomy 21:23, that to die on a cross or to die on a tree was a sign of being cursed of God. Christ redeemed us, though. That's the whole point. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's the whole point. The purpose of Christmas was, was Easter. We don't get Easter without Christmas. He came to, to die for us. Because without His, his death, um, we'd still be unredeemed. We wouldn't, we, there wouldn't be a being born again. If Christ hadn't come and entered this world like He did, we wouldn't be born again. We wouldn't have the hope of the resurrection like we do. Uh, we wouldn't have the hope of a future restoration. On a, on a transformed earth someday or a new heaven and a new earth. The ultimate hope of the gospel. His mission though was to, to come and die and to be a curse for us so that we could be restored. We could be redeemed. And the Hebrew author has to explain this to these Jewish people who, who thought of this Rome conquering Messiah and not a, a suffering Messiah. So they're wrestling with all that and they needed to know because it was kind of a thought in their day and you pick up on this i think uh in in the gospels but a lot of these descendants of abraham some of the jewish people like the you know the the priesthood and these guys they thought that they were just they were automatically saved they were automatically good to go because they're literal you know they're physical descendants of abraham by blood and i'm good to go i don't need a savior well the hebrews author is explaining no you you do need a savior and you need to know that christ was taught and predicted throughout the entire old testament and that your old covenant that you've been under for so long was temporary but anyway messiah's jesus's tangible human life his flesh and blood tells us that he knows what it's like to walk the face of our planet he, he's he been here, and he's done that. He's been in our shoes. He's experienced hunger, thirst, probably uh, loneliness, fatigue, anger. He's experienced love. He's experienced the loss of a loved one. Remember the shortest verse in the Bible, or I guess ours, Jesus wept? What was he weeping over? The loss of Lazarus. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he knew blisters as much as he walked around. Uh, calluses probably on his hands from working hard, being a carpenter or whatever he was. Uh, Sunburns—he had to imagine he he experienced a sunburn. He had headaches, backaches, lack of sleep. He he went through all that just like we do, isn't that great? I mean, and you you know that's unique because there's there's no other religion or thought of God in the world that has that same mindset or the same even that same sympathy where where god actually came into our world and and lived the life that we live that's amazing there's no other religion in the world who has a god like that there are all these you know cosmic far-off gods that you just can't totally relate to because they haven't been here they haven't done that but we know Christ has, and there was a lot of Old Testament predictions that said he was going to come, and then the New Testament is all about the eyewitnesses that testify to the fact that he did come, he did walk among us, and those Old Testament predictions were fulfilled. But uh, look at uh, verses 14 and 15, we find our first purpose statement uh, in our passage today, and this is actually a dual purpose statement that kind of We're going to tie together and it's going to become our fifth reason for the incarnation. We've looked at four already in the past couple of weeks. We're going to look at two more today. But uh, 14 and 15 says, He partook of the flesh and blood so that, or that through death, He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might, there's the and, might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. All their lives. And so I tied these together for our fifth reason, to render Satan powerless and free us from the fear of death. And when it says Satan had the power of death, I think thanks to comic strips and different movies, uh, we tend to think of Satan ruling on a fiery throne in hell, don't we? You know, maybe he's a, a red devil with a pitchfork, or we might think of the mythological god Greek god of Hades who's kind of like the god of the dead and the king of the underworld or uh maybe we think of the grim reaper who walks around with that you know sickle that's what I'm looking for <laughs> thanks oh, yeah he walks around with a sickle and he's actually in charge of death is that how it works no that those all of those are very unbiblical we know that Jesus himself Even says he holds the power of death and Hades. So he's in control of this. He overcame death. He has the keys of death. He has the keys to Hades, which is the grave, the realm of the dead. And uh, God is in charge. We know this too from other scripture that he is in charge of our days from start to finish before there is even, before we even have a day, before we're born. God knows the day that he's going to take us home. And we fear God and not Satan, and we are comforted by God's sovereignty over our lives, even the hour of our death. One of the other misleading theological concepts about Satan's power is the concept where, uh, some of you might be familiar with this, but where Satan is portrayed as uh, demanding a blood payment for the release of sinners. Have you seen cartoons like this before? where Jesus comes up to Satan and says, that, you know, what do I have to do to free sinners? And Satan says, that's the price of your blood or something like that. As if Satan's demanding that Jesus give over his life to release us. That too, I don't know if you've seen any cartoons like that, that is very unbiblical as well. Okay? Um, it wasn't Satan that had to be satisfied, was it, in order to have sinners released from sin it was god's own holiness that demanded by law by his nature or essence his perfection that an innocent innocent blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins okay it was god's own holiness that man sinned against and all satan did through his scheming and deception in the garden of eden was take advantage of that that law that was in place deceiving man into sin and so satan knew god required death because of sin god had said that and uh through sin he will use death as a weapon against man he weaponized death i mean he uses it against us at that moment in the garden he also usurped authority as as the administrator of this world we looked at that last week uh, he became this administrator of the world he rules the world uh, the whole world, John says, even during the church age, lies in the power of the evil one. And that's why we pray thy kingdom come. So Satan has a tremendous influence over this world and, and over man. And we have to remember that Satan, Satan hates us with a passion. Think about this. Satan even hates those who worship him. People worship Satan. You know what? He hates them too. He doesn't care. He's a tyrant he is a petty tyrant and as an angel he was created to serve man we looked at that last week he was created to serve man to to render service for the sake of those who will believe he was created to be a servant however in his pride he decided he was not going to serve man rather he wanted to be served he wanted to be God he wanted to be worshipped and Satan uses death as a weapon against us because he, he wants us ignorant of what Christ has done for us until we die so that, like him, we'll spend eternally eternity separated from God. He doesn't want us to spend eternity with God. He wants us to spend eternity separated from God. Think about that. Satan wants nothing but you to suffer and to die apart from Christ. That's what He wants. What does Jesus want? He came and suffered and died in our place so that we could be kept from suffering and eternal damnation and destruction and instead be restored to God. That's what Jesus came to do. He, the Son of God, John says, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be born again spiritually by the Holy Spirit. Our eternity with God is secure at that moment and we are, we're free from Satan's grip on us and uh, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And uh, one day we know that Christ is going to come And like Romans 16.20 says, Jesus is going to crush Satan under our feet and we will actually judge angels in that day when the kingdom is established. So right now, we've been set free from his, His grip. Satan can still pester us, right? He still kind of picks on us a bit. But He can't possess us. He does not possess us. We're free from the dominion of darkness. However... He still uses the fear of death to control people today. Do you guys see that at all? <laughs> he uses the fear of death to control people, especially those who are without the hope of eternal life in Christ. He's using fear of death to control and manipulate the masses today, to do His will, to, to bring about His agenda. Things are lining up for the end times, aren't they? The fear has paralyzed our world. As believers in a coronavirus world, Christians should be the ones living by faith, trusting in God, not paralyzed by fear. We should show people the hope of eternal life that we have in Christ. We don't have to live in fear. We know that death is a gateway to God's presence. You know, to to depart from this world is to be at home with the Lord. To to live as Christ, to Paul said, what to die is, it's gain. We don't have to live in fear of death because of what what took place at Easter, the resurrection. He lives, right? Nothing can stop Christ, not even death, not even Satan. In fact, to depart this world and to be with Christ is much better. Paul said, to be home with the Lord. And so we shouldn't let fear of death control us. We have hope, guys. Show the world that hope, please. Don't live in fear. Don't let it paralyze you. Show them what they need. Jesus Christ, the one who lives and who was raised again and who sits in heaven, seated at the right hand of God as our high priest. Um, In the context of Hebrews, look at how Satan's using fear of death. He's using fear of death to control people who aren't grounded in Christ's superior and sufficient sacrifice. He keeps people who don't understand the superiority of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, he'll keep people busy with religious rituals and games rather than a real relationship with Christ that that rests in what Christ has done. So if you don't believe that the cross was enough, what are you going to do? If you don't believe the cross was enough, but you're still kind of a religious person, you're just going to do good works and religious works and try to be good enough, right? Because the cross isn't enough for you. Satan doesn't want us to think that the cross was enough so he can keep us busy, so he can keep us wrapped up in these little religious games that we play. And you see this, maybe, I, I saw it a lot in the church I grew up in, very traditional, ornate building, okay? And those sort of, you know, the smells and the bells and the fancy pomegranates and things, they, they keep you kind of sla- enslaved in that system, like it's worth something, but it's not. Um, India, we we the Berean Fellowship has church planning over in India, and India is just full of people who are slaves to the fear of death. All these different rituals and sacrifices and things that they're going through trying to appease God, trying to be good enough because they're scared to die. But once they understand the gospel, all that is brushed aside. They rest in what Christ has done and not in what They do. That's the hope that we have in Christ. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? That's what he calls them. Dead works to serve the living God. So to uh, to try and measure up, to try and be good enough is to say, you know, Jesus, your sacrifice just wasn't enough it's actually rejecting the cross to try and work your way to God through being good enough salvation the Bible says is by grace it's free it's through faith and it's through faith in Christ and what he alone does he alone can liberate us from the penalty of sin because of what he did on the cross he alone can 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 give us a power over the sin in our lives and give us the hope of glory and then only he paved the way look at that in verse 10 and it calls him the, the author of salvation, the author. When you see that word author, um, it could be translated, some of yours might actually translate it this way, pioneer. He pioneered our salvation, or he's our, he's our trailblazer. Some of your really loose translations might say that too, some of your paraphrases. Uh, <laughs> he's our trailblazer, and no, he's not like that kind of trailblazer. Okay, Chevy's breakdown. Um that's a horrible joke, isn't it? Sorry, Chevy guys. You know what? All of them, Chevy, Ford, and Dodge, they all break down, don't they? Christ doesn't break down. He's not like this trailblazer. He's a hes a better trailblazer and more, a better image than a, a vehicle, four-wheel drive, would be someone who's got a machete in their hand, and they're leading a group through thick brush, and they're cutting away at at everything, they're clearing a path. They're actually leading people through uh, a difficult place to travel. So he's a, a trailblazer, is someone who does all the hard work. They're out front, they're leading by example, they're not shouting orders from the back at others to do it. He's out front leading by example. He blazed the trail for us to enter glory again. That, you know, when, when the Bible says he went from glory to glory, I like to think he went from the glories of heaven to earth back to glory again so that we could go re- be restored to glory with him. Isn't that neat? Uh, remember the argument in this context, too. And we see this in verse 16 of chapter 2. That's something he did for who? Descendants of Abraham, not for angels. He didn't do it for the angels. Angels cannot be redeemed, contrary to what... Uh, you guys ever seen that Noah movie with Russell Crowe in it? And these angelic watchers come down and help him build the ark? It's, don't watch it. Okay, so the, it's, in that movie, angels are depicted as helping Noah build an ark, and they can be redeemed through what they're doing. It's, <laughs> it's so wrong. Uh, I wouldn't recommend watching it. Angels cannot be redeemed. Once they fell... They fell. Jesus died for man, not for angels. And in the argument, that's that's emphasizing that Christ's humanity is not inferior, uh, or Christ is not inferior to angels. He's actually superior. But uh, anyway, let's look at the second purpose statement for the incarnation in verse seventeen. Here, uh, he had to be made like his brethren, us. Uh, in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god to make propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted and that which he suffered he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted and so that's the sixth reason there so that he might become a sympathetic high priest now the jewish audience that this is written to they would have been very familiar with this it's a little abstract to us uh in the Old Testament, or in the Old Covenant under the priesthood, you had a lot of different priests who ministered daily, and they never sat down. They were always on their feet ministering. But there was a one, I guess you could call him like the boss high priest. He was the lead priest, the high priest, and he was uh, responsible to, once a year on the Day of Atonement, to enter behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. That's where God's presence actually dwelt in the holy of holies and there was a curtain here that's the the veil that was rent that was torn on Easter and uh, when he was crucified but that high priest would once a year go in here to offer blood sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on the ark uh, for the sins of the people for another year well Christ in the book of Hebrews is pictured as the fulfillment of both the sacrifice the blood that's that's sprinkled and the sacrificer the high priest who entered within the veil so he entered but he sat down you know he's the sacrifice and the sacrificer and that word propitiation uh, means satisfaction of god's wrath so he when we trust in christ as savior god's wrath is satisfied against us isn't that good news his wrath is satisfied against us. That means God's not going to pour out His wrath on His church. That's a big deal. Because in the book of Revelation, you see who? Pouring out His wrath on the world. Christ. Christ is the one breaking the seals, pouring out His wrath on this world. So that tells, that's, a, that's a good argument for pre-tribulation rapture, isn't it? He's not going to pour out His wrath on His church. But uh, anyway, he was able to offer himself once for all, and then sit down, and that's something no priest ever did. And he's at the right hand of God, signifying that sins have been paid for, and all, all who believe—I mean, if any of us—we're we're welcome to enter the presence of God at any time, to approach boldly, boldly approach the throne of grace, whenever we need to. That's what Hebrews chapter four sixteen says. Let us. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Let's enter into the Holy of Holies so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's the beautiful thing about what Christ has done for us. And uh, anyway, let's ask this, though. This is a good question, a pertinent question. Why was this sacrifice necessary? Why is this sacrifice necessary? Couldn't, Couldn't God have just forgiven us without dying? I've heard people say that. God could have just forgiven you, but instead He chose to come. No, that's not how it worked. He had to come and die for you. His, He's totally perfect, right? God's perfectly holy, perfectly holy, which means He cannot look on sin with any sort of approval. Actually, Psalm five four. This is a good one to memorize for witnessing. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. The evil cannot dwell with you. Well, we're sinners, right? We have wicked thoughts and actions all the time. We're not perfect. So we can't just enter into God's presence uh, without having our sin dealt with, without, without having our sin taken care of. I mean, if this is true, we're all in trouble, right? God's perfect. We're not which means we can never be good enough. We're never going to become perfect on our own. We needed a perfect God-man, right? To satisfy the demands of a holy and just God. And that's what Jesus Christ is. He's the perfect sacrifice that we needed. I mean, allow a... I don't know what's up with the cars today, but allow a fender bender to just illustrate this. Let's pretend after church, I'm backing out. And, uh, you know, I've got a big topper on the back of my truck and I can't see very well. And so I back out and I, I hit you. I, I hit your car, not you, just your car. And uh, we've got damage to your car. Well, we basically only have two options at this point. You've got a big dent in your car. Here's the options. I can pay to have your car repaired. That would be right. Right? That would be just, I pay for the dent I put in your car. Or you can say, well, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Ooh. You know, you basically, you're saying, I'm going to pay for it, right? I'm going to extend you grace and mercy. But the fact is, even if you offer me grace and mercy you're still going to pay for it either in your car's value, like your, your car's value is going down, or you're going to have to pay to get it fixed yourself. The one option on the table is not uh, is, is pretending that it didn't happen. The option not on the table is pretending it didn't happen. Someone has to pay for that when one way or another. Well, as sinners, all of us have crashed into the holiness of God, and there is a, a massive debt, that has to be paid for that there's a big dent that needs to be removed and so we can either uh, pay for our own debt by reaping the consequences of a christless eternity in hell basically we just get what we deserve that would be fair us getting what we deserve or we can accept that god in his mercy and in his grace has actually taken on human flesh and lived a sinless, sinless life and offered himself as the payment for our sins to satisfy his wrath against sin. He takes your sin in exchange for his perfect righteousness. Which, which option do you want? You, you pay for your own sin in hell forever, or you accept his mercy and grace that's offered to you in Christ. This is the, what they call the great exchange. Christ took our sin upon himself and instead, when we put our faith in him, offers us his perfect righteousness. Isn't that awesome? Here's another picture of that based on the, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's by grace, through faith, in what Christ has done. Amen. He takes our sin, we take His righteousness. That's not fair, is it? It was costly, and it cost God a lot to save us. But for us, it's free. And if you've never received that gift, what are you waiting for? Christ died for you to save you, and you can do that right now. You can, you can be saved just by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you on that cross. Maybe the light's coming on for you at this moment and you're born again just like that. That's how it works. That's how it worked for me. But you might express that through a prayer and say, God, I I believe in what you have done. I believe that you sent your Son to die for me. And I want to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior right here and right now. Today, if you're here, don't harden your heart. Listen to what God is saying. God has spoken to you in His Son. He wants to save you through what He has done. He loved you so much, He came into this world and died for you. But think about this. Let's turn our eyes to the conclusion now. To satisfy God's wrath against sin, Christ had to take on flesh and blood and and be proven perfect. He had to be proven perfect. The word translated tempted in verse 18 is a Greek word that throughout the New Testament is translated tempted, tested, and tried. That's that was the the, the, pic, the depiction of Christ's life on this earth. He was tempted and tested and tried and did he fail? No, he was perfect. Adam in the wilderness or Adam in the garden failed, the first Adam, the last Adam, Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, or the wilderness in his temptations. he prevailed. Christ prevailed. and you know in relation to Christ's life, he knew all of these things, temptation and testing and trial. He knew it to a greater degree than all of us could ever imagine or face. And what that means for us is that our God is not some distant, uh, cosmic, you know, different God who can't relate to us. He, he, he's been in our shoes and He's remained victorious through it all because of that. And He can not only save us, He can actually render us aid in the here and now. Jesus is our perfect Savior and our sympathizer. I think we're tempted to think that Jesus is good enough for the ticket to heaven, but he's not good enough for what I'm going through today. You guys ever feel that way? He died for me, great, but what about today? What about right now? What about this cancer that I've got? What about this loved one I just lost? And what am I going to do without him? But this is the way in which Jesus Christ was perfected for us. He became perfect. Your Bible says that in verse 10 probably. Jesus became perfect. What's that? What that's not saying is that Jesus wasn't perfect in His nature or, or essence. It's saying that He completed His goal of becoming our perfect Savior, including being a perfectly relatable and sympathetic high priest who could be with us through all the junk that we're going to go through in this life. He's not just good enough to get us to heaven. He's good enough to minister to us right here and right now in this sin-cursed fallen world. He's there for you always. He completed the mission. He can save us and He can minister to us. He's been there. He's done that. And He's victorious. So He knows how to minister to you. So just ask that question again. What is it that you're going through today that you're tempted to think is just too much for God? just too much for him. What is it that he just can't possibly understand what you're going through? What is it that you're tempted to turn to for comfort rather than turning to Christ? We have all sorts of different things that we turn to, right? When we're going through a hard time, it might be alcohol or some other thing from our past. You know, what are you what are you turning to to cope? Like what the Hebrew author is trying to say to us is that Jesus Christ is superior to whatever you're turning to. He's superior. Everything else is inferior. He has been there and He has overcome and He's there for you, sitting at the right hand of God, ready to minister to you in our most difficult times. We don't turn from Him, we turn to Him. And we anchor down. Remember that from last week? We anchor down in faith to what Jesus Christ is and does for us and this is kind of the the concluding comment for this portion of Scripture I know it's in chapter 3 verse 1 but you know the chapter divisions are not inspired Um, this is the transition point I guess into his next argument therefore holy brethren therefore therefore what is that therefore Uh, in light of everything I've said in chapters 1 and 2 holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling consider Jesus Just consider Jesus, the apostle, the sent one who came down, and the high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. Don't you like that? I should have named the sermon that. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let the Son of God speak to whatever you're going through in this life. Let Him speak to your situation. Let Him speak to your pain. Let Him speak to your trials. Let Him speak to your junk. Ask yourself, how has the Son of God spoken to you? To my situation in His Son, how does the incarnate Son speak to my difficulty, what I'm going through right here and right now? Maybe, maybe you're you're tempted. Maybe you're going through a lot of junk, and you're tempted to let your emotions and your feelings get the best of you, and say, "I don't even know why I bother." I, I, I you know, I barely made it to church today. Isn't that easy to do when you're going through a trial? Just kind of let your emotions and your feelings take over and say, God just doesn't really care. He's not really there. He doesn't understand. Remember what Jesus did when he was tempted? He said, it is written. It's written. He turned to the word of God. He didn't let his emotions and feelings guide him. He let the word of God guide him. And the word of God this morning says, he is able to aid you in whatever you are being tempted with, or tested or tried How about when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Our divine trailblazer was under severe trial and temptation and wrestling with the cup of wrath that he was going to drink on our behalf. But what did he do? Seven words in English. Not my will, but yours be done. In the face of pain and suffering he decided that he was going to trust the Father and move forward with his will. He trusted God despite the suffering that he was going to face. How about, I don't know, you could apply this in a million ways, the ways that Christ speaks to our situations, our difficulties. Uh, everybody's been losing loved ones, right? Um, it seems like most people have, or they know somebody who has, and... What do you do when you lose a loved one? How about, can we look to the son, the resurrected son, and know that one day he's coming to reunite us with them and him? We're going to meet him in the air. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Our gathering together to him? I can't wait. You lose a loved one, yes, but how has God spoken to you in, that, in his son? His son tells you it's just temporary. It's like a pause on the relationship, and someday you guys are going to be reunited. And let's, lastly, let's look at this. Practice it. Okay? Consider imitating Christ by sympathizing with and aiding someone else in their difficulty. Consider how you can model Christ's likeness to others so that they can see something different in you, maybe drawn to Christ themselves. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 reminds us that God actually takes us through certain difficulties so that when the time comes, we'll be able to minister to others in theirs. This is what it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You guys realize what that's saying? Some of the hard things you go through are very intentional because God wants to use you sometime down the road to minister to someone else who's going to go through that same thing. You might know what it's like to lose a child. Someone else is going to lose a child down the road that, and you can comfort them with the comfort with which you've been comforted. You know, I, there's some things I just can't touch. I, I've never lost a child. I don't know what that's like. But I have lost my dad and so I look for people who have lost their dad. You know, that, that's the kind of thing that God does. So be on the lookout for how God wants to use you to minister to somebody else just to sympathize with them and say, you know, I'm here. I'm here for you. I think all of us know someone going through a rough time this year, and to be honest, to be honest, there's not a lot of optimism going into 2022, is there? I hate to say that. We thought 2021 was going to be better. I don't know. I'm not very optimistic about 2022. So let's take advantage of the times that we're in. And let's Anchor down to Jesus Christ in faith and let's minister like we're called to. Let's love our neighbor. Has your neighbor lost somebody? Go minister to him. Bake him a pie. Say, I'm here. I'm praying for you. Something. Take 30 seconds this afternoon, maybe right now, just to, to pray about, think about who God has placed in your life that you can sympathize with and, and really minister to. To, and I just—I would encourage you to write their names down and just pray over it. That's a good application for us today.